purpose as being an area that we think will be increasingly important for firms to address over the coming few years. We're working with a couple of firms at the moment that are doing a great job of this, of really engaging their people in discussions about why they exist, what their purpose is, and you know, trying to go beyond this idea that the purpose of a partnership is to make money for the partners. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am talking with and learning from Ray De Cruz. Ray's down in Australia where he heads up a business as CEO, a company called Performance Leader. They do consulting and software for professional services firms, so mainly lawyers, accountants, engineering firms, some education. And what they're trying to do for those firms is help them harness the intelligence and creativity of their partners and employees, mainly around performance management. So we get into some of the differences between a typical mid-sized firm and, and maybe a professional services firm. We talk a bit about how that shows up in terms of compensation, particularly for the partners and involvement of HR in that, and how Ray and his team are trying to put data in the hands of organizations, which is not just financial. In many professional services firms, there are a lot of metrics that finance are comfortable with. And it's about time and money and not about behavior and performance. Still many firms having a, an annual performance review and Ray and his team are trying to get people away from that to a more 360 review, including client feedback and behavioral and project-based feedback so that these firms can grow and flourish and many of his clients are in the top 10 places to work in the markets that they serve and we also chat a little bit about some of the things that he's seen as we've moved to either fully remote or hybrid particularly around leadership and purpose and there in fact if anything more important than they were before and how some nudge tools around catching up and also rolling out reward and recognition tools has been really helpful in some of his clients. So a great conversation with Ray. I enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. I'm Ray DeCruz. I'm the CEO of Performance Leader. We're an Australian-based company, but now working all over the world. And our focus is on implementing performance and feedback software in professional services firms. Why performance software and why professional services firms? What took you down these two particular avenues? Well, the professional services firm part comes first. And part of my story is that I started out life 
as a lawyer working in that area. And so by the time I'd spent five or six years as a lawyer and then in a management role in those firms, I really felt that I developed something of an insider expertise. And then when I was looking at the application of HR software into that sector, I saw a real gap there. As for why performance and feedback, I guess we felt that, you know, amongst all of the HR technology suite, that's probably the most strategic place to be. So it was a place where we could combine our interest and knowledge of the sector and technology in a really meaningful way. What types of impact are you having with your clients? Or maybe even there's a, behind what you do, what is the uh, sort of, is there an underlying philosophy or underlying set of scientific principles that you're trying to bring to life in the tool set with your clients? I guess the underlying philosophy or need is around evolution. So like every sector, professional services sector is going through rapid evolution. It's probably a little bit delayed. You know, a lot of these industries, manufacturing and so on, have been through this years earlier, digitisation, automation and so on. And so we're in a space with our clients of helping them to evolve. And we see the technology and the platform as really an intrinsic part of that. So we would say you can't have a truly evolutionary culture if you don't have a performance and feedback culture. And, you know, with that performance and feedback culture, you get change enablement, but you get it at a, at a kind of an organic or human level as opposed to an imposed external level. So it's constantly evolution, but, you know, there's a better chance of success because we're trying to engage people in it. And professional services, lawyers, accountants... Is that predominantly where you're working? Yeah, lawyers, accountants, architects, engineers. I mean, broadly, you could talk about B2B. And we're even doing some work in the education sector. So it does broaden out a little bit. But our core, most of our clients fit into that legal accounting, professional services sector. Okay. And when you say managing change, what what are people trying to achieve? Like when if a client says, Ray, this is my problem, can you help me? How do they articulate those challenges to you? Well, look, typically in this sector, the challenges revolve around three things, trying to become more collaborative in the way that these firms work together with their clients to solve complex problems. So our clients are typically engaged in helping their clients, corporations, solve complex problems. They know that as a consequence of that, to do that successfully, to build that relationship with the client, they've got to be more collaborative. And, you know, you'd know a lot of law and accounting firms don't have a history of being collaborative. They've actually got a a history of people working in silos. So that's the first change. The second would be, you know, building on that. Technology is becoming ubiquitous. Automation is there. It's not necessarily replacing roles, but it's certainly augmenting them. And so these firms are having to become a lot more tech-savvy, and a lot more innovative in the way they deliver their services, time-based billing into value-based billing, um, human interaction into technological interaction or mixtures of those things are all on their radar. And underlying all of that, given that they are human businesses, is their capacity to help the people who work in those firms really 
become more collaborative and more innovative. And that's sort of where we come in in terms of the performance and feedback frameworks. Talk to me more about that. If I'm, if I'm a lawyer in one of your clients and they've deployed the software, what do I get? And who are you asking for? Who are you getting the feedback from? Typically, the feedback is coming from the manager or the partner down, but increasingly that's becoming a bit more democratised. So instead of just working in silos or, or, or narrow little clusters, project teams are broader, they might involve people from different groups. And so the feedback that is starting to get generated is a much more diverse type of feedback. It's more project-based. It's more real-time. Yeah, there still is that kind of formal review process sitting in the background underpinning a lot of this. And, and the manager or the partner still has a really critical role because they've been often mentoring or developing the person. So that person wants them to be involved. They want the feedback. They want help with goal setting. Um, but in terms of the feedback, the feedback is a lot more frequent in most of these firms than it used to be. So we're moving away from the idea of an, an, a standalone annual review to an idea of maybe some formal check-ins, but you know, augmented by constant feedback based on the job, on projects from all sorts of people who they might work with, including clients. Aha, uh-huh. okay. So project-based rather than annual. I find it fascinating because it, it's such a long time since I had an annual appraisal. And then I meet, I meet friends or colleagues who work in large corporates, you know, they have their annual appraisal and the boss says, well, you were shit last year. Didn't actually tell you all the way through the year, but just so you know, that's a reflection on the last 12 months. And you just think, God, how soul destroying. So, and all people, and I, I see it in clients who have an annual review process, they lose a month, a year to the whole process that nobody sees, you know, the employees don't get value from it. And the whole organization is in review shock for a month and nothing else gets done. It's fascinating. Fascinating that, pe- that people think it's even worth doing. It's, I, that's my thing. It's like, look, just can it and get your time back because at the minute it's not making any difference. I might be a bit heretical in terms of your views there because I, do, I still think there's a role for regular formal, semi-formal check-ins. Um, and, and a lot of the people we work with have that view, even though performance reviews are deeply unpopular for all the reasons you say. But I think there are, there are two parts to this. The first part is I think there's, you know, it's a truism, but there are good performance reviews and there are bad ones. There's such a thing as a well-constructed conversation. And by analogy, you know, if you, if you want to go out and talk to your clients or customers periodically to do a check-in, it can be a really good conversation. And in the same way, you can have a good quality conversation with an employee that is structured, that is formal. So that's one thing. I think there is such a thing as a good formal conversation. Not always achieved. Look, I completely agree with you. It's not that I'm against performance reviews per se. I absolutely think performance reviews are vital. It's just most of the time in large businesses, they're done awfully. Yeah, they are. And I think the other mistake is that they're relied on solely and there are no other inputs. And as a consequence, recent memory syndrome and all of these sorts of biases creep in because we haven't been gathering data or information or checking in with each other regularly. And so we leave it to the last moment. We forget what we've done. 
Um, there's an enormous amount of anxiety created around this. Um, it must impact people's well-being when it's done poorly. So a big part of our role is not just trying to broaden out the feedback process to be more year-round, but it's to sit with that formal review process and the people who own it and, and really delve into how it can be fixed, how we can reduce the pain points, how we can make sure people are better prepared and how we can get people to the other end of it so that they actually say it was a valuable exercise. And are you, are you covering both productivity and behaviour? Yeah, absolutely, yep. Because I think often CEOs I talk with, often they've decided to do an annual appraisal process because that's what big companies do. And as they've grown up, they've decided they didn't have it and they've put it in. But what they haven't got is they have no behavioral framework and they have no structured KPI. So people don't know day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, what their score is or any get any behavioral feedback. So the annual appraisal is the only time yeah. they, they understand what the company's score on them is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so much of what happens in these organisations, certainly in the professional services sector, where the leaders have typically come from client-facing roles and therefore the challenge is to minimise the amount of time they spend on leadership, not maximise it because they're not billing. What's happened is we've ended up with a whole series of legacy processes that are like a minimum viable product. And, you know, what we know is that you know, if you want to have cultural change, you've got to invest in leadership. I mean, that's your role. That's what you do. You you help prepare, you invest in leaders and help them achieve change. And so there aren't really any shortcuts. And so we don't necessarily go, to, we go to our clients and say, you will save time by optimising this or digitising this. You'll save time on the stuff that you shouldn't be spending excess time on, like finding documents and writing things down. But we don't say you should then use that time for other things. We say you should use that time for the real quality leadership activities that, that should accompany this. So we're often encountering group leaders who say, well, I've got this client load. I can't spend, I, I would love to have quarterly check-ins or monthly check-ins, but I don't have the time. So there's a threshold decision that firms need to make about whether or not they're prepared to invest the time in order to get the culture, whether they want to continue on along this minimum, you know, viable product uh, mentality. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, when you say it, it's obvious, but I hadn't thought about that. Often we have conversations with clients about dedicated managers or player coaches. Mm. And there's a tipping point we often see where, you know, somebody thinks their job is to get the team's job done. And actually their job is to make themselves redundant because they can get on and do something else. But those pressures to stay on the job are even more, you know, you got, you didn't get promoted because you were a great leader. You got promoted because you'd been there a long time and you'd successfully build X, you know, hundred thousands of dollars. And maybe you don't like leading. Maybe you don't like doing, you know, any of this appraisal stuff. Yeah. And you mentioned KPIs a moment ago. And, and so many of the KPIs relate to, the production capacity of the individual. How many hours can they bill? How many, how many fee, you know, what kind of fees can they generate? None of that really goes to the medium and long-term challenges of the company, of the firm. So all of the KPIs, we did some research that suggested that in the professional services sector, 75% of the KPIs are short-term production measure related. And so 
all of these areas that I'm talking about that firms need help with around collaboration, innovation and transformation, none of them have accompanying KPIs. So stuff doesn't get done. And, you know, that's part of our work too is helping firms reevaluate their KPIs and say, well, okay, we're not going to necessarily pull the rug from under the financial KPIs, but we need to balance them. We need to balance the the lag indicators that are dominated by production with some lead indicators that are based around the medium and long-term health of the organisation. And so what do, you, what do clients typically put in if they're following your advice? Well, they'll try to get that balance. So firstly, what they'll probably, we hope they'll do is reduce the number of KPIs that any one person is focused on. So instead of having 20, we try to say, look, let's get that down to three or five that we can talk about. Let's make sure that no more than half of them are financial production related. Let's make sure the other half relate to collaboration or innovation, maybe the innovation pipeline strength, maybe collaboration can be assessed around how your peers view you. Do they see you as someone who supports them, you know, helps them out when they need help, introduces them to your clients, collaborates with them on projects? Let's ask them and let's generate a metric based on their feedback. So what we're trying to do with our clients is bring some sort of equilibrium into their view of KPIs or metrics. Yeah, I remember talking to a law firm here in the UK and they said, we don't need any new clients. We just need our partners to collaborate because actually if we could cross-sell our services across, you know, multiple product lines to our existing clients, we could double the business, except that's not how they work. No, but there is a, there's a nice pathway that doesn't necessarily involve having to pick up the phone and cross-sell and, and the pathway starts with saying, well, Dominic, what do you do and how might you help my client? So bringing people in to help the client, as I mentioned earlier, playing to strengths. So respecting each other's expertise is good for collaboration too. I'm not going to try and do everything. I'm going to try and bring other people in. So if I can apply that problem-solving mentality, it suddenly becomes a lot less odious for partners and firms than, than the word cross-selling. Yeah, so well, I did uh, I did some work with a corporate finance organisation and I said, I'm here to teach you how to sell. How do you feel about that? Let's just tell me what you think about the word sell. And people are like, oh, sleazy, slimy, unethical. It's like, okay, let's not teach anyone how to sell. What about influencing? What if we influence, we could influence a prospect to become a client? They're like, oh no, that we're very comfortable with that. So yeah, there is some loading around the word sell for people who are in professional services? Uh, look, I think it's changing. I'd certainly say 10 years ago, sales was a, a dirty word. I don't think it's a dirty word anymore. I think people understand it. But getting the behavioural change is another thing and finding a really sort of progressive pathway to do it. That evolution is the way to go. Do you get to see the financial performance of your clients over time as they work through this with you? Yeah, well, we, we include um, financial data in the system, so import financial data from clients. That's their data, so we're very conscious that it's not our data, but we will sit with a client and analyse performance using the tool, using the analytics, cross-referencing behaviours with financials and so on in order to draw a picture around what constitutes high performance or maybe to identify um, poor performance issues or underperformance issues. So... All of that data 
you know, comes together to create a, a picture or tell a story around performance. I was just thinking what if you're able to tease out the impact of performance management on the company's overall performance? Yeah, that would be um, that would be amazing. And we and look <laughs> we'd love to be able to say that, but we're always a bit cautious because we know there are so many factors. I mean we we've got a picture of what a productive and high performing organization looks like. Our view is that we will help, you know, that might have ten factors. We will help address three or four in our approach, but there are other things at play here. So if we were slightly of a more charlatan nature, we'd definitely make the claim, but we try to be a bit more careful about it. That might be, unfortunately, my lawyer training. <laughs> what do you think, though, is, you know, if you've got a decent performance management system in place versus a company that doesn't, mm-hmm. what do you think it's worth to them? Is it worth, I mean, it might not end up showing at bottom line performance in a really clear way, but it might be employee engagement might be up which might mean that turnover's down. It might be individual billing performance is up in aggregate, although you might have a couple of toxic A's who've disappeared. So the peak performer may no longer be there. What are some of the things that you you tend to see? Because I guess you're in seeing the senior partner or managing partner and they're saying, come on, Ray, am I going to get my money back? Does it make a difference? Well, yeah, look, absolutely. And you mentioned engagement. There is definitely a correlation between good performance management practice and engagement. That is absolutely proven by companies like Willis Towers Watson. Um, You know, we will often get briefed or engaged following an engagement survey. And then the next engagement survey is a critical measure to see if there's an improvement. And I think in every situation we've been involved in, the answer is yes. There has been an improvement. Often we're probably one of two or three key initiatives in order to address that. But, you know, some of the sorts of things that that will draw out in terms of feedback from staff, that engagement survey will be, I don't have enough clarity around my role. I don't have clear goals. My manager isn't meeting with me frequently to talk about my performance and give me feedback. I'm not getting recognition. Recognition's a big one at the moment with hybrid working, I think, because people are out of sight and out of mind. So a lot of engagement surveys are talking about recognition at the moment. So there are those sorts of factors, and we know that will impact all of those things and therefore influence engagement. The broader answer, I think, is that the sorts of firms that want to invest in our technology are generally more progressive anyway, because they've got an investment mindset. They're not necessarily they are thinking about ROI, but they're thinking about it in a broader sense of a healthy organisation and what good organisations do, what good leaders do. They're coming at it from that angle. So we've got a lot of clients that are often rated in the top 10 employers in certain markets, in their own markets. Um, Is it because of us or is it because they're progressive organisations that invest in technology? Um, Maybe it's a bit of both. Yes, it's difficult to tease those two things apart, isn't it? Mm, It is, yeah. Your observation there that recognition is coming up a lot in terms of hybrid, what's COVID and a move to hybrid meant to your clients? Has there been any changes in how they've had to do performance management or? Yeah, well, it's made some changes. So people have to be a lot more conscious because, you know, we're not necessarily in front of each other. Um, so things like nudge tools that technology is really, you know, t- technology is great at nudging, 
And so making the most of those sorts of nudge tools when, you know, we might not have seen each other in a week, but I know that it's important that we do a catch up. Those sorts of things become really helpful. Frequent surveys of how things are going and um, pulse surveys are, are a factor as well. Um, but just keeping in, you know, in constant touch. We've got uh, clients who have rolled out recognition programs, a couple of rolled out nomination forms through the platform so that, you know, if I've done something great and you want to acknowledge it, you can go in there and nominate me for an internal award. So I think there are all sorts of little ways in which firms are trying to become better recognition environments, even though they're hybrid. The one thing I would say, though, is that, you know, those firms that were well-led before remote working are generally the ones that have handled remote working better anyway. And so, we again, we come back to leadership as this underlying enabler. I'd say the ones that had struggled before are struggling even more now. Yes. Well, you've got employees who don't have clear understanding of what's expected of them. In some ways, it's, it's always felt counterintuitive. Gallup's Q12 of employee engagement, no, question number one of the sort of pyramid, you know, I know what's expected of me at work. Mm. And you think, well, how could people not know? Mm. But, you know, often people just come in and they're going around the block. They go around the block a couple of times at their desk and then they go home and they do it again the next day. And there's no sense of being on a journey or knowing whether you made a difference today. Yeah, and... I'd also flag in addition to recognition based on what you've just said then, purpose as being an area that we think will be increasingly important for firms to address over the coming few years. We're working with a couple of firms at the moment that are doing a great job of this, of really engaging their people in discussions about why they exist, what their purpose is, and you know, trying to go beyond this idea that the purpose of a partnership is to make money for the partners. <laughs> now, what what really is the role because that that's obviously going to exclude 90 percent of the people who work there so that's not a purpose well when i asked one of our clients uh, a couple of years ago why are you in business trying to understand their purpose the two guys who founded the company said well we were sitting in the pub one night wondering why we were continuing to graft so hard to make the partners at ey richer when they already had enough money so we thought sod it let's do it ourselves <laughs> You know, exactly that complete lack of purpose in their former organisation got them to go and set up a company with purpose. Yeah, and it's not it's not easy if you've got a big firm, differences of opinion. You've got to be committed to the debate, to the discussion, to a bit of messiness, takes time. So, you know, it's, yeah. much, it's so much uh, more different than just crafting some neat little statement. It's It's a whole approach to engaging with people getting their feedback and ideas. You've obviously got a, a breadth of clients and, and you did say, look, many of them are in the top places to work, but even within your client base, are there things where in your mind, the best, the more progressive are doing that, that some of the others aren't? Yeah, uh, definitely. So yeah, I think so much of what we do is built around structured processes. I think the best firms are taking a step back from those processes and looking at these things constantly at the data that's coming out. There's, the, the system produces a lot of data. A lot of it's really interesting, but you know, only some of our clients really take that data and look at it in a holistic way to try and see what kind of patterns are emerging. And that's a whole new strategic level of HR. And so some 
HR groups are confident and capable of doing that. It requires a new set of skills and perhaps what old HR has had, more analytical technological skills, porting skills, visualization skills. But we think that's really powerful because the ability to then take that back to the business and have a conversation with the leaders about what's happening in a performance sense really elevates that whole the whole area of performance and feedback to another level. And in the organizations that you're working with, they don't have a particularly strong there's no central function around reporting. They don't have an IT team or a finance team that is delivering that. So it's those HR teams have created that skill within their groups. Yeah, well that or they might they might second some help from finance, but Generally speaking, those skills are not present in the quantities they need to be in HR. This has been spoken about for 10 or 15 years with the rise of analytics and reporting in HR. It's changing very slowly. It's changed. It, it's fundamentally changed at a large corporate level, but it hasn't really filtered into medium-sized enterprises, which is what most prof- large professional services firms are. So there's still a way to go. Some progress is being made, but there's a lot of opportunity there for firms to really go further and for HR to be seen in a really different light. Unfortunately, what happens is because HR isn't necessarily in control of the quantitative data, that seeds to finance. And so we get back to that problem I mentioned earlier where the metrics are dominated by financial metrics that finance feel comfortable with. What we really want to see is HR start to own that too and that's where the balance can come from. Yeah, we've seen that with some of our other clients. We we partner with a company called Friday Pulse in the UK that does employee happiness measurement as a way of attempting to drive engagement with a view to driving productivity. And uh, we see that where HR directors have gives them some data and it allows them to challenge the managers or the directors or the leaders perception of performance in their own bits of the business and now all of a sudden we're into hr being part of managing the business managing the gain rather than managing the gap that sort of move away from compliance into strategic conversation and so your tools give hr leaders similar data set you know i'm part of the conversation i'm part of the change yeah absolutely what we don't do is give them the psychological safety that's got to come from the leaders so you know, they need, they, need to, <laughs> they need to be able to sit in a room and not feel like they're going to get hectored over this stuff. And so we've got some analytics workshops we run and we talk about, you know, not necessarily presenting conclusions but presenting some ideas and insights in co-creating the solutions or co-discovering the solutions in order that, you know, they don't necessarily feel like they have to defend and justify everything. It's a really tricky balancing act and I can see why a lot of HR professionals in firms that don't have that psychological safety don't do it but from a leader point of view they should be absolutely creating that kind of environment and demanding hr step into that role it's interesting isn't it the the firms might wish to be something else but unless they solve that problem creating the space and or hiring the people who can challenge them they're not going to get the change they desire yeah we did some research a few years ago where we looked at the percentage of hr involved in the equity partner performance and compensation process in professional firms and the number's pretty low it's you know around 50 percent now if you compared that to a corporate in corporate it's 100 percent, right so there's a big gap there 
And unless HR is influencing executive compensation, it's not really at the table. So then we looked at the desired level of involvement. And of course, HR wants to be involved, but the leaders don't necessarily want it. And one of the leaders in a feedback session with us said, well, you know, I'd love to involve, and this is a leader of a firm of about five or 600, I can't remember whether it was a lawyer, so account, it's not a small firm. But I'd love, big firm. Yeah, I'd love to involve my HR director in this, but, you know, he or she's not capable of having that conversation. And, and our response is, well, we don't know whether they are or they're not. But if they're not, you need to hire someone who is because you're missing out on a whole set of capabilities in relation to one of the most important processes your equity partners will go through. Yeah, fascinating. Ray, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? <laughs> um, well, known earlier. Um, I think you forewarned me about this question and I said to you, I wish I'd learned how to touch type. <laughs> when I was younger because I would have probably re- reclaimed 5% of my lifetime's work. But I think, you know, uh, probably now looking back over my career, 25 years working, being more purposeful about my career and my direction and my company and so on, I think would be one thing. And that's what we advise our clients. So, um, you know, maybe heeding a bit of our own advice like that. What's your purpose as an organisation? I think it's really to support the evolution of that professional services sector by building that performance and feedback culture, by trying to break down some of the barriers that exist within these places and really help them move into a become much more progressive and engaging and diverse um, organisations. We see the professional services sector as being really important in the community, the community leaders. And so the, you know, we've got a role in really supporting the transformation of that sector. Fab. And Ray, along along your journey, what um, maybe now as performance leader or maybe even earlier when you were heading up L&D at, at law firms, what books were influential? What would you recommend people pick up? Well, in terms of the sector, <clears throat> professional services sector, the, 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 the Bible that people often refer to is the uh, the book by David Meister, Managing the Professional Services Firm. It was written almost 30 years ago, and I reread it recently. And, um, you know, a few of the terms might change, but the underlying philosophy of it was so far ahead of its time. It is still an incredibly valuable contemporary book. And that influenced me in those early days, and it was quite profoundly. So I would say that's one of them. I picked up a book many years ago while traveling in a bookshop called Rethinking the Future. It's a pretty obscure book. It's edited by a guy called Rowan Gibson. It's got chapters in there from people like Gary Hamill and, and other great thinkers. And for some reason, you know, every chapter in that book is interesting. And and it kind of introduced me to a whole range of people and thinkers. And, and again, I... I still refer to that book. I purposefully cited it in a book that I've just written because I wanted it to be there. I wanted it to be present because it has been so influential. But I, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily confine, certainly don't confine myself to business books. So, I, you know, I think there's some value in, in business books, but I'm, I like reading more broadly, I guess. 
And are you, have you published your book, the book that you've written? It's coming out in August. Uh, it's on um, equity partner performance and compensation. Um, so it might not be of interest to everyone, but it will be of a lot of interest to a small group of people. Totally. What's it, what's it called? It is called the Partner Remuneration Handbook. Okay, fab. Is it pre-orderable yet or not quite? Yeah, it is, yeah. Okay, brilliant. We can, if you send us a link, we'll put that in the show notes and uh, people can pre-order that. Uh, Ray, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Thanks for having me, Don. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.